Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode two in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 12th of February. And Leon, what's on the schedule? Well, uh, we're first of all having a chat with David Hickey, who runs a company called Meltwater, which is a media intelligence company. And he's going to be talking to us all about that business. That's going to be fascinating. And then we're going to have a chat with economist Saul Eslake, all about tax reform, which has been in the news this week because of uh, the government uh, backing away from hiking the GST. Very interesting um, that Deloitte, access Deloitte um, chief economist Chris Anderson saying that uh, the justification for raising GST is very good, but the politics are diabolical. Absolutely. But anyway, let's first of all have a chat to David Hickey. David Hickey, uh, tell us about the role of social influencers for business. Yeah, uh, social influencers are um, becoming more and more critical, I think, for people to be thinking about uh, when thinking about their, I guess, their communication strategy in general. They're a really effective way of, I guess, a cost-efficient way of spreading your message on, on social media, but also just a generally effective way of doing it. Uh, influencers are really seen as people that are really intimately connected with their networks on social media. And we all know that social media is, is very much about conversation rather than just spreading your message directly by uh, pushing it out through your own real estate or your own social channels. You can identify your niche, uh, connect with, with key influencers within those niches and have them spread their message for you uh, by, I guess, pushing it out in their own voice uh, and in their own way uh, to their own networks, which, as I said, they have pretty strong relationships with. And those people are much more likely to, uh, to I guess, come through with conversions uh, if they're receiving those messages from, from people that they know and trust. So how, do, how does a business find social influences? There are a few different ways. Uh, first of all, there are, there are a lot of fantastic tools out there that help you actually identify uh, social media influences. Uh, sometimes it can be very difficult to find the influences in your niche. Uh, it's very easy to find influences in general, um, and celebrities are very, very obvious cases of that. Uh, but if you are in a, a niche space, finding those niche influences is probably best done by just making sure that you use the right tool. Um, and obviously, they, they can vary in cost and, and there are some very inexpensive ones out there. But certainly, I would recommend uh, relying on a service that, that, has, uh, that has built out the infrastructure to be able to identify those people. Otherwise, it, it can, can take quite a bit of time. Tell us about the tools. Yeah, there, there are good ones out there. Obviously, Meltwater provides um, uh, social tools that, that help you identify influencers. But essentially, I'll tell you about how they work. Um, typically, they've got a, a really vast uh, CRM behind the scenes uh, that tags influencers based on their social media reach. Um, and, and actually overlays a, a bit of an algorithm that helps you assess, uh, I guess, the potential influence that, that, that they would have um, and what kinds of networks that they're tapped into. Then when you, when you zero in on, on those influences that, that might be operating within your, your chosen social networks, whether that be LinkedIn, whether it be Pinterest, whether it be Twitter, um, typically you can actually tag those influences and you can actually look at their track record of, of conversations within their networks. So you can look at up to six months, sometimes 12 months worth of data um, and try to assess uh, what kind of messaging they're already putting out. Ideally, they're organically already talking about your brand or your products, uh, which is a very good start. 
Um, and if they're not, you can understand what kind of brands and products they're already talking about. You can understand their voice and their tone. And then you can that, use that to actually formulate your content strategy. So you can start to reach out to those guys with content that you know that they're typically engaging with and try to turn them into advocates. Okay. So how do you get them to persuade them to come on board? There are a couple of different ways. Um, there are uh, agencies out there that, that have uh, you know significant uh, databases of, of influencers, which is also another way. So you can you can actually pay them to to speak on your behalf. And there are some pretty cred- credible influencers out there um, who. Uh, will only engage with with companies or brands that that uh, they feel fits within their profile, uh, and they know that their their uh, their networks would be connected with, or or um, you know I guess they 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 would not be compromised by if they if they represented them. Um, so one way is just to pay them directly. Um, another way uh, through, as I said, you know using some of the tools that are out there, you can just. Um, you know, engage with them directly and, and, and try to be a part of conversations that are already going on and, and, and see whether you can get them to engage back. But more and more the trend is towards uh, influencers converting their influence into um, more of a, a money-making field. Right. And um, tell me, uh, how does social media drive ROI for a business? That is the, uh, the, the million-dollar question at the moment. Um, there are a lot of companies out there that are, that are proving ROI in different ways. Um, I think one thing that, that's clear is that companies need to be on social media in some capacity because uh, and they need to, to have a voice within social media and they need to engage directly with people that are, that are already talking about their brands and products. If you don't have a, a if you're not on social, then it's a dangerous game for you to play because it's, it's likely that people are already talking about your brand and product. So how do you drive ROI? Um, one way which would be your ability to, to neutralize p- potentially damaging situations before they really kick off by actually engaging with those and, and, and looking, seeking to put out those fires. Obviously, nobody wants to be a, a social media statistic and there are some pretty hairy ones that are happening to companies that are very small or, or are very large out there so that's one way that I, I would be focusing on um, and then the other way is is, uh, is is shares and and conversations that the increase in, in conversation and chatter uh, that's going on from from the point of a, a, a campaign start to the through to the point of campaign finish um, and understanding the sentiment of those conversations and also understanding whether the key themes that you're attempting to drive through the campaign are actually being picked up uh, in social media. So David, sometimes people really get flamed on Facebook and Twitter and whatnot and, and these things arise very quickly. How does a company combat that kind of difficult isn't it you can't argue that because the noise is too great perhaps yeah it's it's a really good question um the the first step to any good strategy whether that's in social media or whether that's public relations directly uh in general sorry is is listening um you have to use the right kind of tools um and or you know even just use free tools to make sure that you're you're actually listening to all of the conversations that are going on. Obviously, the better the tool, the the more amounts of conversations that you'll be able to to track and monitor. Um, and those should actually be able to give you spike alerts, or should be able to uh, actually inform you where traffic is is uh, is tipping up uh, beyond uh, the usual uh, expectation. Um, and that that's a way in which you can act quickly. Uh, otherwise. 
otherwise what you would do is just just very regularly monitor your own social uh, traffic um, relying therefore on on people to actually be uh, I guess raising their concerns and their thoughts directly on your um, social media channel channels uh, but it's been proven that, that that's not always going to be the case so being able to, to listen uh, and try to cut through all of the noise to be able to find anybody that's used talking about your brands either by tracking by keywords or tracking for the types of hashtags um, that you're using in certain campaigns can be the, the best way of getting alerted when it's early days. Um, and that's obviously a, a good place for you to start to actually insert yourself into the conversation and try to potentially, I guess, add water to the flames rather than to, to fan them. Uh, that would suggest that uh, every company should have uh, someone managing the social media. Yeah, we our, our experience, and when we work with uh, more than a thousand different companies here in in, in Australia, um, and and obviously there's been huge interest in in social, um, and I believe that that most heads of marketing and, and communications departments have have made social media a part of uh, a communications person's responsibility. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have uh, a dedicated social media manager. That would depend on the amount of money that you are putting towards your your social strategy or the amount of conversations that are already out there or the size of your brand or company. Uh, but it's essential to have somebody or a group of people that have this as part of their working responsibility so that they're aware of things um, and not made aware of them by their CEO or um, somebody from, from outside of the business. That can be quite embarrassing. Well, that's all fascinating, David. Thank you so much for your time. No problems, guys. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Good, oh, very interesting, isn't it? I thought that was. Now, Saul. Saul, it's like, uh, what's your reading of tax reform debate going on at the moment? Well, it's been a more expansive debate since the change of Prime Minister and Treasurer in September last year. And in particular, two premiers from opposite political persuasions, Mike Baird from New South Wales and Jay Weatherall from South Australia, have advanced specific propositions in relation to the GST, which means that the question of whether an increase in rate or a broadening of the base of the GST might be part of the tax reform package that the government takes to this year's election uh, has run on more than might have been thought possible before the change of prime ministership. But in recent weeks, there does seem to have been some more sceptical or worried uh, positioning by other members of the coalition, particularly backbenchers who see themselves as being at risk of losing their seats, as the number of them did both in 1993 and in 1998, when the coalition was running for office on the promise of introducing, as it then was, a GST. And so uh, where do you see it panning out? I mean, uh, um, Malcolm Turnbull has basically said there won't be a tax white paper. It'll be uh, any tax reform proposals will be contained in the budget. So uh, where do you see it travelling? Well, I guess Turnbull doesn't feel committed to the precise format that was laid out by his predecessor. And with time now having run on a lot further, it's probably not practical to have a green paper, then a white paper and a budget and an election campaign. Uh, there are too many things that could run off the rail in a very short period of time in that process. So either the budget to be brought down by Scott Morrison on the second Tuesday in May will contain 
some detailed tax proposals that will be put to legislation if the coalition wins the election that will presumably be held sometime in the September quarter or in early October of this year. Or alternatively, the budget won't do that and we'll see whatever tax proposals the government wants to take to the election unveiled during the course of the election campaign. It does seem as though the Prime Minister, at least, is moderating his earlier enthusiasm for having a bigger or broader GST as part of that package, however, and that is probably for good reason. I feel myself, as someone who has in the past supported a broadening in the base and, if necessary, an increase in the rate of GST as part of a more comprehensive tax package, and I'd still continue to do that in principle. Nonetheless, it's hard to get around the fact that political reality now demands that households with incomes of up to $100,000 per annum, and that's a majority of Australian households, be fully compensated for the impact of a GST increase or broadening on their disposable incomes. And that does chew up a lot of the revenue that any changes to the GST rate or base might make. Moreover, since under current arrangements, which would be difficult to change, all the revenue from any changes to the GST would go to the states, but the cost of providing compensation for the effects of that on low to middle income households would be borne by the Commonwealth government. It doesn't give the government a lot of Commonwealth government a lot of leftover to fund reductions in either personal income tax rates or company tax rates, let alone do anything to reducing the budgetary problem that the government has, to which Treasury Secretary John Fraser. Uh, drew attention in a speech towards the end of January. So I suspect that over the next few months, the prospects of major changes or indeed any changes to the GST are going to recede and the focus will therefore be on other measures. I think there are two areas where the debate could usefully focus. The first is on the prospects for broadening the personal income tax base in ways that Malcolm Turnbull himself canvassed very thoroughly in a series of contributions he made as a backbencher back in 2005. What we're talking about here are things like reducing the generosity of the tax treatment of superannuation contributions, earnings and payments to or by high income households, something where the Labor Party has already given the government some room to move by announcing policies of its own in that area. Uh, the tax treatment of capital gains, legitimate question in my view, why income from what could be described as speculating should be taxed at half the rate of similar incomes earned from working. That also includes the question of negative gearing. There's the issue of the taxation of trusts and the use of trusts to distribute income to members of a household with zero or low tax rates. Joe Hockey had on a couple of occasions proposed that tax trusts be taxed as companies. Indeed, the coalition government under John Howard had contemplated that in 1999 as part of the package of reforms that followed the Ralph report and which led to the halving of the capital gains tax rate back then. There are still measures that could be taken in the area of fringe benefits tax, some of which is more concessional than regular income tax. And all these things would do much to address concerns about the fairness or equity of whatever the government is proposing, as well as raising revenue that could be used to reduce personal income or company tax rates and possibly uh, make some contribution towards reducing the budget deficit over the longer term. I find it 
almost hypocritical for people who have advocated broadening the indirect tax base to be unwilling to contemplate broadening the personal income tax bases to his credit, Malcolm Turnbull recommended a decade ago. The second area where debate could usefully focus, especially given the concern the states have as to how they're going to make good the impact on their revenues of the cuts in Commonwealth grants for hospitals and schools that were announced in the 2014-15 budget, is what the states could do in their own tax reform, tax backyards. Uh, And there are a lot of options that haven't had much publicity of late, but which the states could usefully consider. For example, replacing stamp duty with a more broadly based land tax that includes owner-occupied homes, as the Henry Review recommended, as many economists have advocated, and as the ACT is gradually doing by a slightly different mechanism over a period of time. Another reform that could be considered by state governments is broadening the base of payroll tax reversing the trend that has been in place since the states gained access to payroll tax in 1971. They could broaden the base of payroll tax and lower the rates which they charge, which would potentially raise more revenue and probably contribute to enhancing the efficiency of the state tax system. So in the time between now and the federal budget, or indeed between now and state budgets or the subsequent federal election, there are other areas of uh, tax reform that could usefully be contemplated and discussed. Those issues of uh, states moving on taxes would uh, certainly answer uh, Jay Weatherall's and Mike Baird's proposals that uh, part of the GST be hypothecated for schools and hospitals for the states. That's right. I mean, uh, Mike Baird and Jay Weatherall have both made useful and constructive contributions to the debate and have helped keep a range of options on the table. But as with other premiers, they are keen, Victoria's and Queensland's premiers, for example, in advocating an increase in the Medicare levy to make good some of the shortfall in uh, payments to the states for hospitals. Uh, they are all very keen to advocate increases in taxes for which the federal government will cop the political blame, uh, whilst they would gain the credit for spending the revenue that then flows their way under what they propose. Now, that's something that any Commonwealth government, no matter what its political persuasion, is going to find difficult to swallow. Right, and and which is why Scott Morrison wasn't that keen about uh, Mike Baird's proposal in the first place. (laughs) Well, so it would seem. As I say, in a, in an ideal world, uh, which we don't have, of course, uh, broadening the rate, so broadening the base or raising the rate of GST would be a live option. After all, as the Treasury's uh, tax paper that was published by Joe Hockey in March last year points out, compared with those countries that have GSTs, Australia's is narrow in its application and its rates are low compared with European governments, including ones that put a much higher store by equity considerations than Australia has typically done, GST rates are commonly 20% or even higher. And of course, as everyone knows, in New Zealand, the GST rate is 15%, and it applies to more than 90% of things that households buy, compared with less than 50% of things which Australian households buy that are subject to the GST. Of course, in GST, there is neither an upper house nor states to compensate complicate the situation. And on the last two occasions when a New Zealand government has raised the GST rate, there hasn't been any compensation other than reductions in rates of personal income tax for the impact of the higher GST rate on households. But our political situation is very different. Not only do we have states and 
a Senate, which can create problems for any government that wants to move in this area. But now, as a result of what the Howard government did in 2000, when it had a very big surplus to draw upon in order to ensure that every child won a prize, as it were, out of the tax reforms that imp- implemented then. And subsequently, when the Gillard government introduced the carbon tax, which also had an impact on households that was greater for households on lower incomes, uh, the Australian electorate has now been conditioned to expect that any changes like that will be more than fully compensated for in so far as low income households are accepted. And Malcolm Turnbull himself has said that he wouldn't contemplate making any changes to the GST without providing that sort of compensation. As people work through the issues and think about the numbers involved, that does seem to be an increasingly important argument against making changes to the GST that might otherwise seem quite sensible. Saul Leslie, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me again. Thank Leon. you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, it's, uh, it'll be fascinating to see which way they go. Now, uh, now that the GST is off the table, uh, will they go with negative gearing? Will they move on super? I mean, I mean, all of those issues are really, really difficult. Maybe they'll do it over many, many years. Uh, I don't know. Do we have many, many years? That's yeah. part of the problem. That's right. It's, uh, it's all in the lap of the gods, uh, or maybe the people up in Canberra. That's right. <laughs> which gives me something to worry about. Anyway, the news, because that's pretty interesting too. Well, let's ta- first of all start with what's coming out of China, and China's foreign exchange reserves fell by $99.5 billion in January to $3.3 trillion. That's according to a People, People's Bank of China statement. And that means China's foreign exchange reserves have shrunk to the lowest level since 2012. Now, China's reserves are the world's largest, but they fell by $513 billion in 2015, which is the biggest annual drop in history. And the fall in reserves has been triggered by China's economy growing at its slowest pace since 1990, a weakening yuan, forcing the bank to dig deep into the reserves to buy up the yuan and stabilise the currency after it unexpectedly slipped in early January, which sparked a sell-off across global markets. Markets. And Vimal Gore, who's the head of income and fixed interest at BT Investment Management, is warning that the capital outflows could actually risk a hard landing for China's economy. It's like a run on the bank, he says. Well, yeah, and there's a lot of very small banks in China, and most of them have overlent. That's right. And that's a real worry because if the economy sags, then a lot of guys are going to go broke. And if China's reserves are running down, it's a, it's a real worry. Now to uh, the oil price, which is going down, 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 and the International Energy Agency says the global oil supply is actually bigger than previously estimated, and that's raised the risk that the oil price can sink even further. The IEA now forecasts that oil supplies might exceed consumption by an average of 1.75 million barrels a day over the first half, compares with last month's estimates of 1.5 million. And at the same time, OPEC has increased its output. So at the moment, oil is trading at 12-year lows of 30 bucks a barrel, but there are now forecasts it could sink even further. Morgan Stanley has cut its oil forecast from the US high 50s to uh, 20s over the next year. And few are tipping a recovery. Ian Taylor, who's a chief executive of Vitel Group, which is an oil purchasing group, says oil prices could stay low for the next 10 years. Yeah, well, it might take 10 years to use up the the uh, reserves we've got. Which is a real worry. That's going to mean low oil prices, and that's going to destabilise markets. Yeah, and the Saudis are still pumping it out. That's right, and Iraq, Iran has started uh, out 
increasing its output after the sanctions were lifted. That's so, right. So, uh, you know, it's it's all happening. The markets this week, Gary, and fears that the banks will be more exposed to fresh economic slowdown and rising bad debts have plunged stock markets around the world into the red. And in Australia this week, banks led the carnage, wiped out billions from the share market. And this was repeated on stock markets around the world. Banks have been hit by investor jitters after Deutsche Bank this week um, War issued a statement trying to reassure investors it would repay its debt. An investor angst has been triggered by growing concern about the global economy and the bank's exposure to bad loans linked to the energy industry now being squeezed by the oil price collapse. But it's just a measure of the uh, crazy volatility, in, uh, particularly in Europe and even here, because uh, Deutsche Bank shares rose 17% overnight. That's right, but they did sink to early in the week to the lowest level since 1992. That's right, and, and it's just up and down like yo-yo stuff. That's right. Well, as you say, there's a lot of volatility there. Now, Malcolm Turnbull has walked away from changing the GST. The Prime Minister on Sunday, in effect, wiped out any chance of a rise in the GST, claiming on the ABC Insiders program that he is yet to be persuaded about a hike in the goods and services tax. And his words were... At this stage, I remain to be convinced or be persuaded that a tax mix switch of that kind would actually give us the economic benefit that you'd want in order to do such a big thing. That took it off the agenda and that was actually sending a signal to Scott Morrison, the treasurer, and the word is that the relationship between uh, Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison is not that good at the moment. Yeah, a bit like Howard and uh, Costello. Yeah. Now, uh, but of course, Turnbull is facing a business backlash over his handling of this. And the Business Council of Australia Chief Executive Jennifer Westcott called on the government to produce its numbers before it ruled anything out. And she said BCA modelling showed economic benefits from personal company income tax cuts funded by GFC High and said there didn't seem to be any other option. And she's challenged Mr Turnbull to produce his numbers, which he hasn't done yet. No, well, because the politics are diabolical. That's right. Now, some interesting figures on consumer confidence. It's uh, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. It rose 0.2% in the week ending 7th of February. And that's broken the declining trend in confidence seen over the last four weeks. It's still below its long-run average levels, but the figures suggest that concerns about markets have abated somewhat. But the big unknown is whether it means consumers will be spending. And the same figures from the uh, Westpac Melbourne uh, Institute. Uh, and that rose uh, 4.2% in February, following a fall of 3.5% in January. And the index is now back at a level where optimists outnumber pessimists. And consumer sentiment about family finances relative to a year ago lifted about 11.3%, following by a 9.4% fall in January. And Westpac chief economist uh, Bill Evans attributes a bounce to the markets being relatively stable over the last few weeks. Yeah, well, I'll be thankful for small mercies. Now, business conditions have held up but are showing signs of easing. National Australia Bank's latest index of business confidence uh, figures show that uh, conditions slipped one point to come out five points in January, equal to the long-run average. Business conditions at ease notably from the highs in 2015, in large part driven by the deterioration in Western Australia and to a lesser extent South Australia with a slowdown in mining. And outside of mining, conditions were patchy with unexpected weakness in the retail sector. On the other hand, the transport industry was benefiting from lower oil prices, while the major services industries were clear outperformers. At the same time, the number of job advertisements have risen with further moderate employment gains coming for the coming months. Job ads on the internet and newspapers in January uh, rose 1% according to the ANZ Jobs Advertising Index, and they're up 10.8% on the same month a year ago. 
So that, that's not too bad. Now, interesting stuff if you own property. Rents have risen in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra, but not enough to stop slumping markets in Perth and Darwin from slowing growth over the past year to zero. Now, median rents in January average across state and territory capitals, um, according to CoreLogic RP data. The changes in rents have not been spread evenly. It's been patchy. Over the year to January, there were rises of 1.4% in Sydney, 2.1% in Melbourne, 1.8% in Canberra. Hobart, the landlord's eke had a tiny gain of 0.1%, while rents fell by 0.7% in Brisbane and 0.4% in Adelaide. But the winding down of the mining investment boom has left its mark in Perth, where rents fell by 8.6% through the year, and in Darwin, they fell 13.4%. That's pretty bad. They'd be underwater. That's right. Now, Moody's Investor Services has downgraded Western Australia's credit rating to AA2s, warning forecast deficits are going to blow out unless the Barnett government strengthens its commitment to improve its budget. And Moody says there's a lack of financial cushions against adverse movements in commodity prices and exchange rates. And in December, the West Australian government revealed it would deliver a record $3.1 billion deficit this year, and net debt would balloon to $39 billion within four years because it's suffering from plunging iron ore royalty revenues and lower GST payments. So that's a big problem there. Yeah, the whole of the resources um, side of the economy is in a bit of trouble, with one exception, and that's lithium, that's because right. of batteries. Well, lithium, lithium uh, is for um, mobile, for, for iPhones. And also cars. That's right. Yeah. For electric cars. Electric yes. cars. So, we, And we've got a lot of lithium, which is good, but and it, I think the current price is about $15,000 a tonne, but it's not going to replace iron ore. No, but it's going to be interesting to watch. Now, online currency trader Ausforex has told the market that uh, takeover talks with Western Union are no longer going ahead. So the Ausforex price dropped for more than 40% after the news, which was combined with an earnings downgrade. And ports and freights company Asiano says the sweetened takeover offer from QUBE is better than the rival offer from Canada-based Brookfield Infrastructure. And in its statement to the market, said QUBE's $9 billion offer was superior to the one from Brookfield. And QB had increased its bid by $0.07 cents to offer $7.04 in cash, plus one QB share for every Asiano share. Now, based on QB share price, QB's provised offer had value at Asiano at $9.24 a share, or $9.05 billion. Handy money. Absolutely. And, of course, Gary, it's profit season, so let's look at a rundown of the company reports. Now, Boral lifted its profit 31% to $136.6 million. Its revenues for the six-month ended December 31st fell 4% to $2.2 billion. Diversified Australian property development company Stockland's profit rose 50.6% for the first half to $696 million. Commonwealth Bank profit rose 4% to $4.8 billion. Carsale.com's net profit rose 10% to $51.34 billion. $51.34 million, sorry, in the six months ended December 31st, while its revenue climbed 11% to $167.34 million. Full year net profit after tax for CIMIC, which is a construction engineering group formerly known as Leighton, fell 23% to $520.4 million. That's down from $676.5 million in the previous year. AGL Energy reported first half loss of $449 million after writing down the value of its gas exploration and production business. ComputerShare's first half saturated net profit soared 443.9%, which is impressive, to US $84.2 million. But underlying profit suffered a 10.5% fall to US $143.8 million. Oz Minerals' full-year net profit jumped to $130.2 million compared to $48.5 million a year before. 
JB Hi-Fi reported a 7.5% lift in its profits of $95.2 million. Condom manufacturer Ansel's profit fell 20.6% to US $69.6 million for the six months through December. And revenues there fell 7.4% to US $784.8 million. Furniture retailer Nick Scarly has lifted first half profit 41% to $14.1 million. Alesa Gold has posted a 29% fall in full year profit after gold production slipped in the year. And uh, for the 12 months of December 31st, the gold miner said net profit was down from uh, US 65.6 million to US 46.6 million. Adelaide based WA gold miner Remilius Resources expects to report a half year pre tax profit of 28.7 million, which is substantially higher than the 6.7 million reported previously. Woolworth spin off SCA Property Group logged a net profit of 90.8 million for the six months through to December, which is down 7.5% on the same period a year ago. And the company blamed a smaller increase in the value of its investment properties. On, during the period. Broad Spectrum, the company formerly known as Transfield Services, has updated its guidance, now expects its underlying earnings before interest tax appreciation amortization for for 2016 to come out between 280 million to 300 million. And its EBITDA for 2017 is forecast to be above 300 million. And online currency trader Ozforex has lowered its full year earnings guidance. It now expects full year earnings of 35 to 37 million compared to the previous forecast of 38.5 to 40.5 million. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. It's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? That's right, and it's been a volatile week. Yeah, and we can expect it to continue bubbling along. That's right, and next week we're going to be talking to Adam Wadi. He's leading skills recognition expert. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-R-Z, or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.